Well, good morning. Our passage today is Psalm 131. I want to encourage you to turn there. It's one of the shortest psalms in the entire book. And it just has three verses. So it'll be a quick stand. If you wouldn't mind standing as we read God's holy, inspired word. Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you and we acknowledge that even in the shortest of verses, the shortest of passages, your word remains not only true and powerful, but Father, there is profundity to be found. And so I pray that you would help us to diligently search today, apply it, and and learn from it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, in the mid-1990s, Newsweek magazine ran an article titled, Whatever Happened to Sin? And this is what the article said. Before there was shame or guilt or blame, there was sin. As the Bible tells it, Adam and Eve first disobeyed their creator, finding his command not to eat the fruit of a particular tree in Eden, an intolerable limit on their freedom to choose. In shame, the first couple then hid from God when he came searching for them. Feeling guilty, Adam blamed Eve and Eve blamed the serpent. The results of that original sin are still around for all of us to see. Estrangement from God, from nature, from each other, and from ourselves. But who identifies with Adam and Eve these days? Although many people occasionally experience shame, loss of faith, guilt requires much more a recognition of sin and the need to change one's life. 90% of Americans say they believe in God, yet the urgent sense of personal sin has all but disappeared in the current upbeat style of American religion. Guilt, like sin, is a stigmatized word in our highly therapeutic culture. Psychotherapists long ago mislabeled guilt as a disabling emotion. And then the article concludes, even in Protestant churches, there is no confession of sin anymore. The aging baby boomers who rushed back to church don't want to hear sermons that might rattle their self-esteem. And many clergy who are competing in a buyer's market feel they cannot afford to alienate them by talking about the Old Testament concepts of wrath, atonement, and judgment. That was from Newsweek. Of course, it was almost 20 years ago, but still, a lot of insight actually from a secular magazine. And I mention it because even non-Christians recognize that we are estranged from God, from one another, that we live in the midst of unending, busy chaos while we constantly medicate ourselves with the mantra that we are special and everything is okay. And maybe the real calm and quiet of Psalm 131 seems a million miles away, and yet King David describes himself as learning some secrets to being calm, and they're worth learning this morning. Verse 1 reads, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up and my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great, 
and too marvelous for me. According to the Bible, our biggest problem is proud self-will. And even here in Psalm 131, in verse 1, David says to the Lord, I'm not proud. I'm not attempting the impossible. And I like what author David Powlison writes. He says, we all just want a little respect and appreciation. That's pretty normal. We want approval and understanding. Is that too much to ask? We want our family to thrive. We want satisfaction for the ways others did us wrong. We don't, we don't want much. If only we had better health, a little more money, a more meaningful job, nicer clothes, a more attentive spouse, more disciplined children, a restful vacation. Well, well then we would be satisfied. We want a measure of success, just a little bit of recognition as an athlete, a beauty, an intellectual, a musician, a leader, a mother. We want control. I mean, who doesn't? We want to feel good. Doesn't God want us to feel good? We want to have more self-confidence to believe in ourselves. We want, well, we want our way. We want the goodies. We want glory. We want God to do our will. We want to be God. Doesn't everybody? And I think that that stream of consciousness that he describes is not too far off from the way that you and I think to, to some extent or another. And this noise, if you will, in our minds and hearts builds upon itself not unlike feedback. The noise of anxiety and irritation and despondency and ambition, the noise of thought processes like I need more of this or that, I need more money to be happy, I'll, I'll work harder, but I need more time with my family and now I don't have that and if I spend so much time with my family I can't develop my gifts and talents and my hobbies and on and on it goes. And that feedback becomes overwhelming like bringing a live microphone as we do sometimes in front of one of these speakers and creating that piercing squeal that makes all of you stop what you're doing and stop and plug your ears. That's what the feedback of pride does in our lives. And David suggests that it arises from a heart that is lifted up and eyes that are raised too high. And as long as that describes you, it may be that true peace and stillness will not be attainable. But what does this phrase lifted up and the next one about eyes raised too high mean? When we have eyes raised too high, it typically means that they're focused on things we want and don't have. And because David links those eyes to a heart that is lifted up, a phrase that typically refers to pride, it suggests that my eyes are thinking too highly of myself and what I deserve and what I want to have and all how all of that compares to you and to what God has given you versus me. I want more and I'm not satisfied. And it's interesting how at the end of verse 1, David speaks about things that are too great or marvelous, and that doesn't mean that your eyes are fixed on your neighbor's Ferrari or his mansion of a house. It means more simply the things that are beyond your control. You may be able to choose to get up and go to work or to go back to sleep. You may be able to have a myriad number of small choices and decisions during the day, but think about the things that you can't control. You can't control your abilities or your opportunities. You can't control other people's attitudes and choices. In fact, the more you think about it, the larger the list grows of things that are beyond your control. And what happens when you try to control them? You set yourself up for disappointment or anxiety or short-lived satisfaction. 
What happens when you try to ensure that you won't get sick? You easily become obsessed with diet and exercise or plagued with fear that the next nagging pain might be the one that that's the one, the final one. What happens when you're obsessed with getting people to like and admire you? You're tempted to become flirtatious or artificial or try to fit in or impress. And when your efforts don't succeed, you're tempted to disappointment and shame and withdrawing from others. And in fact, the more we think about it, the more false we realize that today's therapeutic culture is, is a big lie, and the more we realize that peace and stillness seem so elusive. But doesn't it sound good? Doesn't a little bit of stillness in the face of all the distraction of our fleshly desires and the busyness of our culture sound nice? How many of you moms wouldn't like a nice, lengthy bit of peace? Wendy tells a story, and a lot of you women have heard this one, but I don't think a lot of you men have. She tells a story how she vividly remembers 27 years ago when she was pregnant with Casey and how I surprised her with an exuberant, untrained five-month-old lab. And this little puppy, like most lab puppies, liked to chew and, and whine and jump fences and required her to be tied to a fence post to keep her from running around in our neighborhood. And I would drive early in the morning another county away to coach the academic decathlon early before school. I taught high school classes at that time. This is almost 30 years ago. And then coached track in the afternoon. So I was, I was absent from a lot of, of that life. And it had been a rough few days when she finally reached her limit. The whining from our unhappy puppy had driven my, un, my overburdened, pregnant mother of two toddlers to the brink of a mental breakdown. And that's when three-year-old Kevin began playing the drums with a pot and a wooden spoon. And one-year-old Corey began singing at the top of his lungs. And the noise became unbearable. And blessedly, with the sound of singing and drumming, Wendy knew she could audibly keep an eye on the boys while excusing herself to the restroom. And she thought, I'm going to use this moment for a sanity break, to enjoy a bit of quiet. And of course, as most moms realize, even the bathroom isn't sacred with little toddlers, right? Because no sooner had she placed herself onto the toilet seat that two toddlers make their way through the door. What you doing, Mom? Kevin asked, while Corey's opening a drawer and pulling out Q-tips. And, and with the door wide open, she can't even pretend to ignore the howls of the puppy outside. It was the final straw. And, and she writes how she said, boys, just give me a little peace. Just a little peace. And surprisingly, they obeyed. They left the room instantly. And it became too quiet. And she began to wonder, what are they up to? And she began to feel guilty for demanding peace. But almost as quickly as they had exited, they came back and with her still sitting there, Kevin comes with the prize. Palms 
wide open, arms outstretched, with a grand presentation, one square of toilet paper. Here you go, Mommy. Here's a little piece. <laughs> well, the piece that Wendy sought is the piece that I'm talking about, although the piece that our son offered is not the answer. Have you found peace an easy thing to achieve? Probably not. You have two alternatives. You can either try to control peace, peace at all costs, or you can turn to the Lord, the Prince of Peace. But be careful with that first alternative, trying to get and control peace at all costs. When I first started thinking and writing the sermon on Monday, the night before was a bit of restless sleep last Sunday night. I had felt burdened by several things that were out of my control that I wanted to be different and I wanted answers and solutions and I wanted peace and I kept rolling through the solutions in my mind and those were matched by the number of times that I was rolling from one side to the next in the early morning hours being restless, trying to get comfortable. Well, just as with a lifted up heart and raised up eyes, sometimes I think I deserve peace. And in that moment, peace itself can become an idol. Maybe that happens to you. You find that the more that you dwell upon this elusive peace, the more you feel entitled to it, the more angry you are that it's not yours. After all, you have worked hard all day and deserve a break. Do you men find yourselves thinking that after a long day of work at the office that peace is your earned right? How many times have you come home and avoided your family's needs because peace was more important? Do you ever arrive home from a long day at work and as you walk into the house your children come running to you and maybe they greet you with hugs but very quickly the complaints start and the fighting that's paused for a moment when daddy came up the door, the driveway begins to happen again and they request help with their projects or their schooling or to resolve a conflict and your wife is saying how tired she is from working a full day just like you just did, inviting you obviously to help. Do you respond with A, yes, my love, go ahead, pour yourself a nice tea and let me sit down with the children. Kids, come here and let's work things out. Or, or do you respond with B, sometimes harsh, words that become even louder words if they aren't immediately obeyed? Do you look for your wife and, and then just look at her with this puzzled glance that says, I don't know what's going on. You've been here all day. You take care of it. And wives, singles, children, you too... Can think of examples that fit your situation. And the common theme is that our hearts are striving after things we can't control. Things that our hearts turn into idols. How, how different it can be when we pursue what we are called to pursue, when we can accept those things that we can't control and we stop trying to control them when we keep our focus upon the Lord and don't make an idol out of those things that we can't create or stop looking with raised eyes at things that we think we deserve but can't acquire. 
David's suggesting that that's where peace begins. And feeling out of control is not the only thing that makes us restless and anxious. Fear, in all of its forms, is another common challenge to peace. You would think that the older we get, the less we fear. But as you've all likely experienced, we just replace one fear with another. The fear of the dark as a child becomes the fear of death as an adult. The fear of punishment as a child becomes the fear of failure as an adult. And what we fear reveals what we find important or valuable. Do we fear being alone? Well, then what we tend to value is companionship and relationship and security. Do we fear rejection? Then perhaps what we value is acceptance and affirmation. And whatever it is that we value, we fear losing it and not getting it. And when our fear begins to manifest itself in our mental life, we call it anxiety. And when it starts to produce physical symptoms, we call it anything from stress to panic. And another author writes, fear can be triggered by the past, can react to crises in the present, or anticipate them in the future. And I like this quote by him. Fear's preferred time zone, however, is the future. Dread, panic, nervousness, worry, anxiety, all speak of potential future vulnerability. Our word fear, he says, doesn't discriminate between threats that are present or future, real or perceived, but it usually says I'm in danger Anxiety and worry are less oriented to the present. They say, I think there will be a danger. Something I love might be threatened in the future. And what he finds is a common theme between all these is that fear points arise because we believe ourselves to be vulnerable and potentially in danger or in danger of losing something important. And of course, the many scenarios that we envision in fear and anxiety could come true, after all. No one can ever prove a worry or wrong. At least not in the present. A meteor could destroy the world as we know it. After all, how many times have you had an article come up on your phone that says a meteor the size of the Empire State Building is on a near collision course with the Earth, right? I've had many of those articles, and then you look it up. I don't know why I looked it up, because I always know exactly what they're going to say. It's five million miles outside of Earth. That's a near collision with Earth. But it could. A meteor could destroy the world so the worrier thinks. And we can't prove right now in the present that it's not going to happen. How successful are worriers at predicting the future? Usually not very successful. They think the worst about tomorrow and then the worst doesn't happen. But you know what? When the prophecies don't come to pass, the worrier doesn't worry less about the future. After all, there isn't time for that kind of thinking because there's too much to worry about for tomorrow. And maybe that describes you. Maybe you're the person that feels out of control. Maybe you're the person that feels anxiously driven by worry or fear. They're all great challenges to peace, and they keep us up at night. They frustrate our attempts to sleep. They keep our stomachs churning. They make us unproductive. But here... 
is what Psalm 131 is telling us. God never intended that we be autonomous and self-reliant. He did not intend that we be able to control everything, that we get everything that we think we want, or that we would be invulnerable. Friends, we are weak by design. Remember that. We are weak by design. And it is right here that we find the God of peace. There are no other choices. Other people can't be trusted. At least, not not fully and absolutely to be the answer to what we need. And we are not in control. That limits the field to God. The greatest possibility for peace and rest lies in the knowledge of the true God. Have you wondered why so many times in the Psalms we've already come across phrases and titles like the steadfast love of the Lord or mighty God or rock or fortress? It is because He is the one in whom you can trust. Let your fear and anxiety, your powerlessness point you to the knowledge of God and let the Spirit of the Lord by way of His Word teach you knowledge of Him. How He is Father, how He is King, how He cares for you just as He cares for every bird and flower. And even though verse 2 of Psalm 131 is David saying that he has calmed and quieted his soul, when we read the rest of the psalm, we realize that this did not come about because David, like Jesus did on the Sea of Galilee that Corey talked about a few weeks ago, said to those turbulent waters of his soul, be still. No, the peace and calm of his soul is related to the analogy that he makes of a weaned child with its mother. A weaned child is just past the nursing stage, still dependent. And it's a great metaphor because unlike a nursing child who when awake is often not the picture of calm, a weaned child is not thinking of food necessarily all of the time. He can rest comfortably on his mother's lap. And the Hebrew concept of calm in this verse is is to make something smooth. In the Gospels when Jesus did say to that storm-swept sea, peace be calm, he smoothed the waves, the turbulence. It one what once was water with these towering waves becomes a flattened sea. And that's what David is envisioning for his soul here in Psalm 131. To calm or quiet the soul is to flatten out the turbulence, to silence that noise and that feedback. And there's only one thing strong enough to calm a stormy soul with all of its pride and distraction and idols. And that one thing is the same one who calmed the stormy sea, Jesus Christ. Stanza two of the hymn, Be Still My Soul, says, Be still my soul, your God will undertake to guide the future as in ages past. Your hope, your confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. So be still, my soul. The waves and winds still know the Christ who ruled them while he dwelt below. Only Christ can calm your soul. And I like how the hymn's composer keeps saying over and over again, be still, my soul. 
every stanza, almost as if we have to remind ourselves frequently of that truth. It is so easy to allow our prideful focus, our lifted up heart, our raised up eyes, our desire for control, and our fearful anxiety disrupt our reliance upon God. We don't trust that the God who calmed the sea can also calm our soul. And so we must remind ourselves to be still by remembering God's great character and His promises. He guides our future. He is our hope. All that is mysterious now shall one day be made bright and clear. All of the great matters that we can't control are a part of God's providence. He's in control. How do we do this? Verse 3 says, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Does that seem too simple? Hope in the Lord? It is the foundation for real peace. And when we realize that truth, we become dependent upon the Lord who is our hope now and forever. There's no room for pride. Consider a few important things from that verse. First, God is speaking to you. It says Israel here, O Israel. But David is exhorting God's people to hope in the Lord. And you are the spiritual heir of what was once a nation set apart to God. As Paul says in Romans, you are now the spiritual children of Abraham. So you are here. Second, you are called to hope in the Lord. The one who is... The only one who gives you something better than all the things that have been making you anxious, who's in control and sovereign over all things. Real hope is not rooted in your performance and your maturity, your knowledge, your personal perfection. It's not rooted in the quality of your character, your reputation, your success. Your hope is Christ. But what specifically should we hope for? I know hope in the Lord, but maybe that sounds too broad and too, too generic. Well, Psalm 130, just right before this one, says this in verses 5 through 8. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in His word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption, and He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. What is this psalmist hoping for and in? He's hoping in God's word and what God's word tells him about God's redemption, salvation from sin and self. Those are the things that matter both now and as David says in Psalm 131, forever. You see, friends, real soul-calming peace is about identity. The biggest problem that prevents you from achieving true peace if you go back to verse 1, as a sinful, proud self-will. We think that we are something apart from God, that our desires, our needs, our pursuits are most important, but there is a way to gain calm through the Lord, and that is to remember our identity as I defined in Jesus Christ. We remember our sin and that we need a Savior. We hope in God's word that says, for example, in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
Paul says, you have been crucified with Christ and no longer live. And so the death of Christ is not a defeat, it's a triumph. In and through his death, Christ breaks that power and authority that sin has over you. And what he does on the cross permanently alters who you are now and who you will continue to be. But Paul goes even further because he says, I no longer live. I no longer live. He's saying the changes inside of him are so basic to who he is as a human being that it is as if he no longer lives. And it's not enough for Paul to say that the death of Christ makes him new, a new creation. He says that when he was crucified with Christ, the old Paul was not not replaced with the new improved Paul, but with Christ himself. And that's important, friends. When we are crucified with Christ, we are not given new selves to better control the sin in our hearts. Our hearts, once under the domination of sin, are now the dwelling place of Christ. The old sinful me has died. And has now been replaced not with necessarily a better me, but with Christ. And that is our new identity. That is what removes pride and lofty eyes and calms the soul. The life I live, Paul says... I live by faith in the Son of God. And that's just like verse 3 of Psalm 131 that tells us to hope in God. We no longer lived based upon our assessment of what we possess in strength, character, and wisdom. We base our lives on the fact that because Jesus lives in us, we can do what is right in desire, thought, word, and action. No matter what we face. We know that He will... Provide the grace that is sufficient for the needs of every day. And so the Christian woman who speaks with patience when she once would have spoken in anger is experiencing the reality of Christ's peace. The husband who comes home tired from work but still serves his wife is living the power of the indwelling Christ. The child who once would have whined when told what to do responds in in joyful obedience. The friend who chooses to overlook minor offenses and stay in a friendship she would have once forsaken is choosing to live on the basis of Christ within me because she has a new identity. Jesus is the soul calmer. When you're paralyzed by fear or anxiety, Jesus has said that his spirit will work in you to keep putting one step in front of the other. When you feel out of control and worry about the future, remember that Jesus has said there's nothing in your future that can interfere with his plans for you. And if the difficulty you anticipate does come upon you, you will, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.13, be given the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I like what this author says. He says, God's grace to you is intended to accomplish his kingdom purposes, not your own. Left to yourself, you would bubble wrap everything valuable to you and invest in armed security. And there's nothing inherently wrong in wanting to protect your assets, but we already know that anything that smacks of being tight-fisted 
or self-protective is at odds with the freedom and generosity of the kingdom of God. A withholding lifestyle, protective lifestyle, means that we don't believe that there will be manna tomorrow. We don't believe we will be given enough grace. Were you hoping for more? There is more, but it's hidden right there, right at the end of this psalm. 131, verse 3. The word forever. When Christ took his rightful place upon the throne, we are told that like an earthly king, he gave gifts to his people. That gift was his spirit and a promise. And the promise is that he, the king, is preparing a place for you and he gave you his spirit as a guarantee of that promise and as proof positive that he was serious and truthful and that your life matters to him. And so I want to exhort you to live the mindset of Psalm 131. When you set your hope in the right place, when you set your eyes upon the right things, no pride, no looking down from on high, no pursuit of things that you can't control, when you look and hope in God the soul's storm meets its master and maker. Be quiet and be still. And he who commands even the demons to obey him, whom even the wind and the sea obey, he can remake you and rule in your life. And he wants to do that. He's promised to do that. He has laid plans for you since before foundation of the world. Fix your mind on those things. Hope in God and he will give you peace. We'll talk more next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this encouragement from Psalm 131 and, and just the start of understanding what you want us to do as we face the things that cause us Anxiety and restlessness. But I believe we start here, Lord. I believe we start with remembering who is our maker, what our identity is, what you've called us to do, where our eyes tend to go, where our hearts tend to go. Father, help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.